Hello all and welcome to the Dungeon Musings podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today I am going to uh, first off uh, send a, a big, big thank you to um, some of the folks who have checked in to say uh, howdy and to uh, comment on the podcast. I greatly appreciate hearing from you guys and a special thank you to uh, Ray Otis, who gave me a, the much-deserved kick in the ass to say, what the hell's going on? It's been a week and you haven't posted. So here we go. Let's hear from everyone else, and then we'll launch into today's episode. Just about finished with your first episode, and I've got to say I'm loving it. Uh, Barrow Maze, uh, I, I've been looking at this for a long time. I still haven't bought it yet, but it's uh, it's pretty close to my next uh, purchase. Uh, I love the idea of uh, the, the spread out over the barrows. Um, it fits perfectly for the campaign I'm running right now. Uh, second thing, you mentioned Scarlet Heroes. I don't know how many times I've recommended this to people. Uh, now I have a podcast to point them to. So, uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Looking forward to the next couple episodes. Uh, this is Rich from Cockatrice Nuggets, by the way. Uh, take care and talk to you soon. Hey, Kevin, this is Larry with Follow Me and Die. Finally got to listen to your inaugural episode. Very interesting. Um, I don't know a lot about Pathfinder other than what I've heard people say about it, you're talking about second edition Pathfinder saying is trying to take a page from fourth edition and make combat important. I question the wisdom of that. I guess they are trying to cater to people that want a more involved complex combat and not the fast moving play style of the OSR. So um, I guess there must be a market for it. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Interesting to hear about your Barrel Maze experience and the West March's style play. I look forward to getting around to the rest of your podcast. Keep it up. Kevin, where you been? It's been like a whole week almost. <laughs> Miss your podcast. Uh, give me another one. How about a Barrel Maze update? I want to know if you have any more Ludo narrative dissonance. I love that phrase, by the way. Uh, between the heroic nature of Scarlet Heroes and the kind of grungy crawl nature of Barrel Maze. I'd love to hear more about that. Um, your first two episodes were so awesome and dense that I had to listen to them like three times each to unpack everything. Really loved it. Um, I have more to say about uh, complexity and combat, but I probably couldn't get it into 60 seconds. So uh, have a great one and look forward to hearing more of you. Okay, well, that is a very good question, Ray. Um, I have uh, been uh, at the day job very, very busy the last uh, little bit. Uh, and we have, at the time of recording, the inaugural Hobbsapalooza convention coming up. And I've been a little busy getting ready for uh, my uh, the session of Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea that I'll be running at uh, that uh, con on uh, Sunday. And in general, just sort of, um, you know, spamming people, trying to get uh, the hype up and get more folks involved with it. So uh, that will segue me into doing a quick shout out for the Hobbsapalooza online convention. If you have not uh, signed up yet and you are interested in playing some good old-fashioned OSR role-playing games, uh, including Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and BXD&D and Labyrinth Lord and Basic Fantasy and Swords Without Master and Other Dust and a bunch of other cool role-playing games, we have a bunch available for you to sign up for at the Hobbs and Friends of the OSR are actually now called Hobbs and Friends, a G Plus community, and the MeWe community as well, too. So if at the time of recording, you find yourself with some time free on the weekend and a desperate urge to roll some 
polyhedrals, digital or otherwise. Uh, you can go to those communities and uh, sign up for a bunch of the different games. So uh, if that sounds of interest to you, please feel free to go and do so. Uh, in addition, uh, there's a number of us who will be streaming our games from that. I think... Um, Jason Hobbs, our resident Hobbs Goblin in chief, will be uh, streaming his uh, broadcast or his Calmata uh, sessions on his YouTube channel. Uh, so you can, uh, I think, watch those on that. And on uh, Sunday morning, I will be streaming my Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, session on my YouTube channel. So if uh, you have not checked out the YouTube channel for Dungeon Musings, uh, and it sounds like you'd like to see me take my first foray into the very cool world of weird fantasy that is represented by that game, uh, you can go over there and uh, watch it live, or you can uh, watch it later as well too, because it will be uh, archived there for posterity. So uh, that's what's been uh, keeping me busy. But it actually uh, made me think about... um, the next topic I wanted to talk about too, and unfortunately this uh, past week has been so busy, I haven't had a chance to to actually record a session about it, but it also has given me an opportunity to um, to think about it a little more too. So uh, let's, what I'd like to talk about today is about saving pearls and hunting white whales. So what I mean by uh, saving pearls and chasing whales is... They're both kind of related concepts. Um, one I see relating to when you are holding off in court, either running a specific game or running a specific adventure or introducing a specific element because you're trying to choose that perfect time to introduce that. And by white whales, I mean just those games that we've all got that we just don't get to the table. You know, um, <clears throat> as context for the... Uh, saving pearls thing what uh there's two things i want to start this uh uh, conversation about i guess first is is the idea that uh, or where the phrase comes from for me Uh, for me the 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 phrase comes from the movie seven there's a great uh line or back and forth between uh morgan freeman and uh, brad pitt's character in uh in that film where morgan freeman is talking about what the the work of the police are in that um in kind of that world and he said that they're effectively and I'm paraphrasing here because I'm too lazy to look it up, but it, effectively it's that the police are akin to their exercise of collecting all this evidence and for crimes that will never be prosecuted and, and whatnot uh, is akin to someone on a deserted island who's stranded there collecting pearls for when there's no hope of rescue. It's that it's the exercise of tracking things that may in some circumstances be uh, valuable or have... Um, meaning, but never really do because they never really, uh, they don't ever get into the circumstances when they do have meaning. Um, the other thing I'm thinking of is there's a saying that uh, perfection is the enemy of done. And it's a writing saying that I, I to be honest, I have no idea who the original um, source of that uh, quote is. Uh, and uh, to be honest, I don't trust the internet to tell me who that actually is. But the, the way, what I take that to mean is that by constantly striving to try and chase this ephemeral idea of the perfect thing, the perfect adventure, perfect story, perfect drawing, whatever, um, you never get it done. Being satisfied to say like, this is how it is. And um, as I I, uh, am also uh, an artist and um, I... One of the things I've, I've come to realize is over the last couple of years, I, I do, for those who uh, don't know me, um, 
in uh, real life, uh, I do an hour of drawing every day. And I've done that for about six years now. Uh, so every day, uh, regardless of how busy I am, regardless of what I have going on, I'll find an hour and carve it out and I will draw uh, or paint or whatever, some kind of uh, artistic thing. And one of the things I've, I've realized <clears throat> over the course of the last couple of years is uh, there's just a point where you need to put, you put your things down and say like, this is done. I can tinker with this a little more. I can keep going on, but this is finished. This is... Uh, this is what it, what it is, and I need to accept it for it. all the imperfections and things that I see that I would improve or want to change. And I think that that lesson can really apply to a lot of gaming things uh, as well. Um, now, I know this. I'm, I'm going to share a couple of my personal, uh, cl- you know, uh, collected pearls here uh, that I've not brought out. And the oldest one I can think of is actually from uh the 80s when i was a kid and playing um the rollmaster role playing game so rollmaster <clears throat> for those who are unfamiliar is uh sometimes pejoratively referred to referred to as rules master uh because it did have some pretty complicated and uh sometimes dense uh rules and it had an extraordinarily complex series of charts and tables that you used to determine the outcome of combat. And that included critical hits and different charts for uh, different uh, weapons as well. Um, I don't want to dev- kind of um, de- degenerate too much into a discussion of uh, Rollmaster, but it was a game I, I enjoyed an awful lot when I was a kid. And the proprietary setting they had for it, apart from the Middle Earth setting, because you could use most of the material in their published Middle Earth stuff for Middle Earth role-playing, was a setting called Shadow World. And Shadow World was really, I mean, kind of just a bunch of modules that were sort of, you know, taped together to try and cobble, you know, together a cohesive vision of this new world. So it's a bit of a mess and in some things. But one product that came out uh, for it called Jamin, uh, Land of Twilight, I loved, I absolutely loved. Because it had in it, in addition to some pretty fun, recognizable, you know, signature uh, fantasy elements... They introduced the the this series of very powerful magical items that were from each of the different kingdoms. There was, I think, five different kingdoms in it, and each of the kingdoms had a specific, uh, like, totemic animal. And each of the kingdoms also had these very special artifacts that were all crafted by this one um, master uh, craftsman. And they were a crown, a amulet, and a sword. And uh, each of them were keyed to the different kingdoms, and each of them were keyed to the different uh, totemic animals. So there was like, you know, a sword of the phoenix, and there was a pendant of the griffin, and there was a helm of the wyvern. And <clears throat> they were awesome, and, and it gave uh, some fun uh, character or, or uh, flavor to those different settings. Now, at the time of the setting, basically, it was kind of like a post-apocalyptic uh, type setting where like the glory of these different uh, kingdoms were in the past. So these... Um, these uh, items were kind of out in the land. And as a kid, I loved those things. But what I always kept doing was every time I ran something with Shadow World is I'd keep waiting to build, you know, our session would be building towards introducing those things. I thought, well, I I don't want to just introduce these things. They need to be introduced with the correct grandeur and whatever else, because these are phenomenally powerful uh, items that could shape the course of nations. So the net result of that was just like that abandoned or person collecting pearls on a deserted island, it never got into play. None of those items did. So 
Uh, fast forward to more recent times, and I have a very complicated relationship with the Iron Gods uh, Adventure Path published by Paizo. Uh, as a quick, I imagine most people are familiar with what Pathfinder uh, is and does, but Pathfinder is a version of uh, Dungeons and Dragons published uh, in the wake of the fourth edition uh, D&D game. And Adventure Paths are basically every six months, the well, every month the, the company, Paizo, publishes a new adventure, and then every six months those adventures are sort of uh, will cycle through a new series of modules that all together perform or uh, offer you one cohesive story. The Iron Gods Adventure Path is one of those, and it offers this amazing science fantasy setting for you to play in. So there's, you know, it's got a very strong kind of Thundar the Barbarian or Thundercats kind of vibe to it. And it's just, I, I absolutely love it. I love the sensibilities. I love the story in it. I love the villains in it. It's just a terrific adventure path. Love the dungeons in it. It's super cool. Love the pacing of it too because it goes from dungeon to sandbox to dungeon to sandbox to sandbox to dungeon over the course of the six modules the thing is and and i guess at further i have sunk an enormous amount of time into converting that material over uh, i've got about 200 pages of material that i've got converting the first adventure from pathfinder into fifth edition D. &D. Uh, if, if you're curious you can uh, do a google search for dungeon musings and you can find on my website the fifth edition version of the mages, the like um, Gish kind of like sorcerer mage from uh, Pathfinder, of the alchemist, of the oracle, which includes like 50 different mysteries. Like it was bonkers how much work I put into converting all this stuff over. Technology, technology spells, monsters and, and whatnot. But the thing is, I've really only, uh, I've really only managed to squeak out two sessions of that, in, of that campaign. And I've had two different aborted attempts at trying to get that thing to the table. But each time, I've been really holding off of just getting to the meat of the story. Both times, I've been trying to set things up because I didn't want to get things. I wanted it to go off perfectly. And that's another one. So it seems that my habit of collecting these pearls and waiting for the perfect execution and waiting for rescue is, uh, is not something that I shook from my childhood. It's something I am still, unfortunately, struggling with. But I've got some hope for that. And there's two reasons why. One of them is from some recent uh, play or preparation for play and some recent uh, experiences in my uh, ongoing Barrel Maze campaign. So uh, regular viewers may, or listeners, I should say, uh, may be aware that I've been running an ongoing campaign set in Greg Gillespie's very cool Barrel Maze complete setting using uh, first Pathfinder 2nd Edition playtest uh, to, uh, to run it. And then later to, uh, I've switched over to um, my own kind of custom version of uh, Kevin Crawford's Scarlet Heroes. Now, the campaign's been going really well. We're about 22 sessions in, and in the most recent sessions, we've seen a great deal. We finally, the guys got themselves into the Barrow Maze. The Barrow Maze game is is this uh, very, very cool setting with this incredibly complex and deadly dungeon that sprawls underneath the series of ancient burial mounds, which itself is hidden in this forbidding and uh, deadly swamp filled of undead and other kinds of awful creatures. So, <clears throat> but the, the, the meat of the campaign is supposed to be exploring this massive sprawling dungeon, uh, which it has been intentionally set up to be reactive and have a good kind of dungeon ecology to it and lots of secrets and factions that you meet in the course of it. So we're finally into the actual game. So realizing that we're actually getting to the part where we're playing through this material, that's something that I often 
uh, end up filling in other stuff to before I get to it. You know, I, I find that in a lot of my uh, on long-term campaigns, it's not to say that they're spinning wheels. It's just that I end up inserting material before I get to what I initially intended to get to. Um, my players will happily tell you about my Iron Kingdoms campaign that lasted for about two and a half years and never got to what was intended to be the second adventure in it. So it was just crazy. But um, but the reason I, I bring... So that that's got me thinking of, geez, like just do it, uh, you know? And the, the other thing that's got me thinking that way uh, about these pearls of mine is the uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea session I'm going to run this weekend. Uh, I had um, this past weekend uh, put together the uh, adventure and the characters for it, and I got thinking about what to do in a, in a one-shot and, and what things I like to incorporate, in, in particular given that I'm playing with people who may not have played the particular game before, so it's got to be something that will help them understand what the game's about and hopefully highlight the cool things about that game that distinguish it from other games. Uh, not just um, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers, but I mean, any game I run for a one-shot. And also because it's people who I've never played with before, so I'm not quite sure what their sensibilities are, so I need to sort of have enough flexibility in it to be able to highlight those particular elements and, and make it a memorable experience, but recognizing that I don't know what, you know, um, I don't necessarily know what flavor of game they're looking for until we get to the table. And going through that and figuring out the things that were, I really wanted to, that I really loved about Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea and what I wanted to bring to the session got me thinking about something, something else had said, which is if you're doing a one shot, just, you know, big, go bigger, go home, get the best stuff from that game, the best stuff that you want to incorporate and throw it in there. You're never going to, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, the follow-up to it. You don't have to worry about the um, uh, the justification for setting it up. You don't have to worry about what happens as a result of introducing all that cool stuff. You can just do it. And um, there's that particular post also said, why don't we do this in our regular games more often? You know, why don't we approach everyone, uh, every session, every uh, game we run for our regular groups? Why don't we approach that with that perspective? So those two things got me thinking about these pearls of mine and thinking, well, why the heck do I not just get these things to the table? I'm not, they're not doing anything. They're not doing what the products are intended to do by just sitting around. All they're doing is just existing in my imagination and that's it. And that's fine. And they're, they're you know, uh, a, a part of my uh, gamer's lexicon, I guess. They're, they're part of what I draw on when I'm, you know, designing other adventures or running other adventures. But it would be a heck of a lot better if they mean that much to me to actually get the damn things to the table. Which brings me to the idea of the pursuit of white whales. So like a lot of you, I imagine that, well, I imagine that a lot of you are like me in the sense that you've got a bunch of games that you've loved for years, but you've never actually got to the table. And what I've been doing in the last 15 or so years has been every year on my birthday or around that time, I schedule a session with my friends and my, my regular gaming group where I'm going to run something that I've never run before or that I don't get a chance to run. And that's an opportunity for everybody else to try and try something new and for me to, you know, get those um, those ticks off on my gaming bucket list of games that I really would love to play uh, before, you know, I shuffle off this mortal coil. That suddenly got a lot darker than I intended, but... I think you uh, you understand my meaning that uh, it's it's those things kicking around so they're not just taking up shelf space there they're actually being used to their full 
intended capacity where which is to to see what happens when you get that in the hands of some creative and uh dazzling slash infuriating uh players and um last year uh for my resolution one of the things i did is i made a list of games that i wanted to get to the table for uh 2018 and for the first half of the year every second week for our wednesday sessions i did that i, I started cycling a lot more games to the table and got to try a lot more things and i really enjoyed that uh, it was an awful lot of work uh, to constantly be preparing new games, but it was work that I certainly enjoyed doing. Um, but the satisfaction that came from just getting those things to the table and how much fun those sessions were, almost always the games played, with the exception of one game, uh, every one of them played amazingly well. I, I loved it. It was everything that I was hoping it would be. Players enjoyed it. And it was terrific. And my uh, once a year when I, you know, now the, my annual uh, White Whale Sessions has now transformed into my annual gaming marathon where myself and a bunch of my uh, regular players, we all get together in my hometown uh, of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. And we play about a 16-hour session of some new session. And we all do it in person too. And we stream it uh, as well too. Now that the uh, we've been streaming our, our gaming as well. And those, all, likewise, have just been a ridiculous amount of fun. They're incredibly memorable and uh, a great way to sort of, um, to mark uh, a kind of an, you know, quote unquote, important uh, session. So with the 2019 breathing down my neck and, and recognizing that I really have had a lot of fun really getting to the meat of a barrel maze and getting to the specific things that I wanted to incorporate in, in Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers, I think what I'm going to do in the coming years is in the coming year is get through some of those pearls, dig them up, and actually get them to the table. Uh, I intend in the because I'm out of my fucking mind. <laughs> I'm going to run Rollmaster in 2019, not a long campaign because I don't think that my players would put up with that, uh, but a short campaign set in Jamin, the land of twilight, and I'm going to get those legendary items in the hands of the players and see what happens. Uh, there's no more. I don't want those to exist only on paper in that molding old book of mine. I want to get them in the hands of the player and see what happens when they get them. Uh, I'm also going to using, not Pathfinder, but using, I think, my Scarlet Heroes hack that I've been uh, working on. I'm going to use that to run Iron Gods because that will likely allow me to get through those uh, series of adventures and get the story and the narrative elements out that I want to do while still you know, providing us with a, a good game framework uh, with which to understand our characters and, and so forth. And that's just two of my pearls. What I'm going to be doing between now and Christmas is going through all my, or the New Year's I suppose, is go through all my, my books and really pick out those gems or more specifically those pearls those games that i've been sitting on that i've been wanting to get to the table for a long time and even just looking around my office here looking at my games i can tell you vampire dark ages that is a pearl that i have buried and i've been waiting to run for the perfect occasion and i've got no reason to not just get the damn thing out and run it um riffs or savage riffs as well too that's another game delta green another game that i have been saving for you know the perfect uh instance to run them and i'm just gonna take them out and run them 2019 will be the year of uncovering pearls i think it's a maybe a terrible name for it but but that's what i've been thinking about is you know the 
Matt Colville has a great, uh, or not episode, but a video on his uh, YouTube channel where he talks about how gaming is the, a game or a role-playing game is the exercise of playing that table at, or playing that game at the table. It's not reading it. And he says that the rule books are no more the game than what the recipe is for food. They may agree or disagree with that too, but I think that you have to admit that there's at least an element of truth there. That the real magic that comes from a, the role-playing exercise and role-playing games is what happens between the people who are playing it uh, at the table. And that's so flaky, I, I realize, but but that's the thing. I mean, this is the thing about this particular hobby is that it's just different. There's a different camaraderie and creativity mix that comes from that particular exercise, the collaborative storytelling, even if you've got an adversarial relationship with your DM, you're still all getting together by choice to create that adversarial story. It still is an element of collaborative creation. And that's something that I have not done with my pearls. My pearls are currently not of any value or really of any meaning, apart from whatever they are, I guess my own imagination, but not as the authors intended. And that's what I want to do in the coming year. And that's what I want you you to maybe think of yourself as well. You know, do you have pearls that you've scrolled away for that perfect time to run it for that perfect group? Uh, do you have white whales that you've been chasing that are sitting on your gaming shelf that you haven't got to, they haven't looked at, or you haven't actually got to the table, that you haven't discussed with your players to see what their response might be? You know, there's uh, most recently I had an amazingly, uh, quite quite lovely surprise when my players thoroughly enjoyed the um, second edition Mongoose Traveler, which I was completely in love with at the time. My, my players really, really took to that. And uh, I didn't, I, I, th I thought that uh, some would, but not, not as many as, as did. So that was a real pleasant surprise. And uh, yeah, so that's what I've been thinking about this past week. As busy as I have been, and again, I apologize to anyone who's been waiting for a new episode. I, I, I do apologize. I will be trying to figure out what the schedule will be for these going forward. But I've been thinking a lot about, with the new year coming, about those buried pearls. So what pearls do you have? What games do you have sitting around that, or concepts, or adventure ideas? What do you have kicking around that you haven't brought to the table? And do you think you might do that in 2019? Yeah, so that's what I've been thinking about this week of whales and pearls. Um, I've also had in the last week or so a, a bit of an interesting um, interesting experience with the uh, the barrel maze. Uh, in my barrel maze campaign, what I've done in, over the last little while is as a way of honoring uh, Carl Sargent, who passed away about two weeks ago now, the very, very cr prolific and creative uh, game designer who created a bunch of cool Shadowrun stuff that I, I love, and a bunch of D&D uh, &D stuff that I love, and uh, a bunch of AD&D stuff that I love as well, too. The uh, I believe he was uh, responsible for the From the Ashes box set, which I know was not uh, necessarily popular with some Greyhawk purists, but that was the first time I really took a, a deep dive into Greyhawk, and I fell totally in love with that product. Um, but in particular, what I did is I, uh, to honor him, uh, because he was not only a game designer, he was also a parapsychologist, I introduced a, I ran a, a special session around uh, Halloween where I introduced this quartet, I introduced one thing, the uh, Serene, the Flying City, which was this flying city developed by Sky Gnomes and a bunch of other things from 
Carl's product, uh, Top Ballista, this kind of half joke, half serious um, uh, publish or thing that was uh, published as part of the Cre Creature Crucible series of modules that allowed you to play monsters for basic D&D. This is the Beckme version of uh, D&D, I mean. Uh, so I, I decided to uh, introduce that. It, it's a product I've owned since I was a kid. I've loved it forever. It's just, I, I've never had players who have been willing to, to contemplate the idea of there being this flying steampunk city complete with, you know, gnomish dogfighting biplanes that are equipped with wands that shoot fireballs and lightning bolts and stuff like that. Um, but... Uh, I decided to throw it in. So I threw in Serene and uh, to honor the other part of uh, Carl's life that I knew about, I uh, basically introduced a quartet of uh, paranormal investigators that were very, very, very thinly veiled versions of the Ghostbusters. And um, that required a pretty heavily scripted and heavily um, railroaded, to be honest, uh, session. And then a couple follow-up sessions in... Uh, in the flying city as well, because the players really seemed to take to it and wanted to uh, have an opportunity to explore and interact with some of the creatures there. And the two things that I found of interest for it is that was a, uh, probably the most uh, negative feedback <laughs> that I've received on sessions uh, so far in the sense, no one's posted mind you, but uh, uh, for in terms of thumbs down from our videos, as opposed to uh, thumbs up, uh, it certainly got a lot more thumbs down than it did uh, thumbs up from the uh, viewers of that session. And um, we actually had a last night, at the time of recording last night, uh, someone asked, when are we going to get back to the barrel maze? But I contrast that with my players, and the players have all said how much fun they've had with this and how different it is from what they were normally doing. And even just seeing how they play, like I had introduced, uh, I think I mentioned in uh, a previous podcast, the... Uh, introducing the Sphinx uh, to these. And I had one player who just made a beeline of like, holy shit, I got to talk to him. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's, streaming is a really different animal. You know, there's two things I, I, that maybe, that I've sort of been thinking about about that particular decision. One is in the relationship between streaming and the players at the table. And all the games that I have been running to date on my YouTube channel have all been, I, I'm happy to stream them. I like hearing from the viewers and stuff like that, but I still don't forget that my primary role is to provide as entertaining a session as I can for my players. And that they're, my first commitment is to them. And then um, I, I just so happen to think that the, seeing them play, the, the stuff they come up with is, and the way they react to the circumstances I throw them in is pretty fucking entertaining too. So the, you know, I'm, I'm blessed to have uh, some really fun uh, players in that sense. Um, but those, the interests and the sensibilities of the players don't always align with the viewers, which is, I think is really interesting. And the, going through that, that, that process of having the ability to get that immediate direct feedback as well from the audience is, is pretty cool. So, so that <clears throat> I find very interesting, although I, you know, it could be that it's not the, um, the, introduction of a flying city or the diversion from the Barrymore, it may very well be that they hate my gnome voice that I do because I do this ridiculous gnome voice for them. So maybe that's just it. And there's a lesson to be learned about the limits uh, to which my uh, voice acting skills can uh, can be put. But the other thing I realized from it too is the Barrel Maze campaign, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is a very sandbox game. You're really free to go wherever and the players are free to go to where, wherever they want. 
it's an enormous amount of fun and there's some great resources in the book for doing that. But um, it also means that it's, it requires very little prep. It's just a matter of rolling with, you know, whatever the players decide to do. By introducing Serene to this, though, and introducing, knowing that it's a limited time, it's required me to do a lot more scripted sessions. And those have, I think, have not been quite as strong as our sandbox ones. And the reason being is because, or at least from my perspective, I'm feeling more, um, not stressed, now at least not bad stress, but I am feeling more anxiety to make sure that I get the story beats that I need to get within a given session, within the two hours or the four hours that we have. And I don't have that feeling with Bar with uh, any other session with Barrow uh, Maze because we know that I just need to be mindful of like, okay, we're half an hour off from quit time. Let's figure out where we're going to, you know, where's a, a way to, to sort of wrap this up. And I guess the, the other thing, this may actually relate to the way that we normally end the Barrow Maze games because the guys all know that at the end of the session, in the Barrow Maze game, everyone's ending up in town. So as we're getting closer to quit time, they all know how much time they've got to get things done. Whereas that's not the case in this story game where they're exploring the city, they're meeting new NPCs and things like that. So it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that um, for long-term campaigns uh, and for the things I've got planned for 2019, I'm going to make sure to bear in mind that the lower stress stuff is going to be more of the sandbox. The sandbox, it, it's more work up front or it's just you need to be able to dance, you know, and think on your feet um, and roll the punches as the players throw them at you by making, you know, decisions you didn't uh, anticipate. Um, but I mean, that that at the table or right, on a week-to-week -week basis, as long as that work's done beforehand, it's a lot easier to run that stuff. It's a lot easier to run those sandbox games than uh, than it is to be considering not only what you know rules you want to have and and who's going to attend but also what spit like what's the chunk of story we're going to explore tonight so hmm so anyway the i, I just find that interesting i think that it's it's interesting that by introducing a, such a different element not only uh, in terms of sensibilities because definitely sky gnomes and a flying city full of sphinxes and harpies and nagpa and gremlins and you know gnomish biplanes that definitely differs from the world uh, that's presented in Barrow Maze Complete. But also the type of story we're telling up there, the type of sessions we're having that are more story-driven and more, you know, um, yeah, just, just more traditional story games in, uh, than, uh, than the free kind of, you know, roaming around the sandbox games. It's, uh, it's something to bear in mind, and I, I'm going to think have to think about that uh, before I introduce... Another, you know, uh, element to the uh, random or to the uh, barrel maze game, because I guess that's the, the the third lesson I learned from this is it is so easy with OSR games. And I know that this is what's said in the beginning of all OSR uh, or most OSR games is that these are designed for you to grab whatever you want from classic D&D products and just throw it in. But it really was the easiest thing in the world to just grab my basic D&D, you know, um, creature catalog grab the top ballista thing and just run it as written. I didn't have to make any conversions. I could just use the stats as written. And that was so much fun and, and, uh, and was such a relief. Uh, and yeah, so if you haven't tried uh, mixing and matching your stuff in, um, uh, in your own OSR games, um, I, as with what says, or as what it says in all of the, those games, they outset that, yeah, you just, 
it is so easy to do that, and I strongly encourage you to do it. I'll, I'll, especially for long-term campaigns, I bet your players will more often than not be pleasantly surprised. Now, in future, I intend to indulge my spelljammer interest and introduce some of the elements from that, including the... Um, I can't what they're called, but they're effectively like D&D versions of Daleks, but they're like, I think they're called Arcane Horrors. And they're basically like walking clockwork creatures or spiders made of different metals that dictate how powerful and how high they are in their hierarchy. Uh, those things and giant space hamsters because fuck yeah to giant space hamsters. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's the update on the uh, Barrow Maze campaign. And some of the lessons I've learned about that, I still uh, want to talk a bit about the house rules that I come up with for the game and and how those are going as well too. Um, but I will save that for later in the week. So let's transition to the outro. So that is the episode for this week. Uh, so for those listening at home, thank you so much for listening. Uh, for those who have called in, thanks so much for calling in. It was so cool to hear from uh, from other, you know, um, anchorites. Uh, it's it's definitely a pleasure uh, and a pleasurable part of uh, doing this on the um, on the Anchor app is to be able to get uh, such direct interaction with other players. I've always loved that about uh, Hobbs's um, random screed is being able to hear from other podcasters uh, that are going back and forth. It makes it much more of an interesting conversation rather than just uh, uh, just you talking at the void. Uh, so I, I deeply appreciate that, guys, and I, I love hearing from you. But until next time, oh, I guess a uh, final thing, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns regarding this, please don't hesitate to leave me a message on Anchor or to shoot me a tweet at Dungeon Musings, all one word, plural, on Twitter or at Dungeon Musings at gmail.com. Otherwise, I hope the week is treating you all really great. I hope to see some of you at the Hobbsapalooza convention this weekend. And otherwise, I'll see you again next time. Thanks all. Bye-bye.